Are you ready for good talk? And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here in Toronto, back from the Arctic, back from the uh, the pure air of Arctic Canada, back into the kind of hot, muggy, yucky southern Canada. Got into Toronto late last night, waited for an hour and 10 minutes for my bags, which was not bad. I felt blessed. Some people had to wait three hours. There had been a thunderstorm of some kind, and... That when that happens around Pearson Airport, everything shuts down, and I'd never seen so many people in the sort of baggage area. But hey, we're not here to talk about baggage. We're not here to listen to Mansbridge whining. Chantel Zebert is Chantel Zebert is in Montreal. Uh, Bruce Anderson is in Beach Meadows, Nova Scotia. One more day having his having his holidays. So look, actually, Peter, I'm going to Beach Meadows shortly. I'm in Port Medway, which is very close, and it also happens to be the place that Jagmeet Singh is coming to today. Later on this morning, he's going to be on the wharf at Port Medway, which I can see from my window. So and he's obviously there because he's trying to impress you. I don't know how he found out I was here. It might have been the social media, but I guess that's why. We're going to talk about Jagmeet Singh in a minute. Um, I'm sure, well, we're going to talk about the, all of them. Uh, over the course of this, but um, this is the way I want to start. I mean, I I have been out of you know out of touch for ten days, for the most part. Spent a good chunk of yesterday trying to get back up to speed, and on, in terms of the election, I, I can tell you, I mentioned this to Bruce yesterday. Nobody on my whole trip talked about the election. Everywhere I went to, all the different you know, remote northern communities. Nobody asked about the election, but nobody asked about it in the Ottawa airport where I was for a couple hours yesterday. And people tend to come up to me as they do you guys and often talk about politics. Same in Toronto while we're all waiting for bags. Um, nothing, nobody. And yet I get to have this sense from what I have read and what I have listened to. And I want you to try and tackle this one for me. And Chantel, why don't you start? Are, are the liberals in trouble? Well, if you um, look at their stated or no, unstated goal of a majority, which remains the only real reason we are having this campaign. Uh, yes, they are in trouble. Their path to a majority, which uh, you could chart relatively easily on the day of the election call, has become littered with obstacles over the course of the first two weeks of the campaign. They are also momentum challenged, i.e. Uh, both the Aaron O'Toole and Jackmeet Singh are seem to have campaigns that are better grounded and that work for them. Uh, and, and I think up to a point, uh, they are where they were in 2019 at the beginning of the campaign, i.e. they're going to have to fight for this one. And I'm not talking majority. I'm talking about re-election. Hmm. Bruce? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I agree with that. Um, I think that you know, the only thing I would probably do is add the caveat that um, I remember when I was a young man, the first time I went to horse races, and I haven't been to horse races very many times, but I do remember going to watch these sulky races uh, in and around Ottawa. There was a couple of racetracks then, and how, you know, the first few bets that I made, I would kind of watch as the horse that I picked and the rider, they would kind of scoot out to a lead. And I would realize that it's kind of a long race and a lot of stuff happens in those sulky races. And, and it, it, it's almost as though you could turn your head away until they come around that last corner and then all sorts of stuff happens. And, and uh, it's kind of unpredictable, or at least it was to me, I gather there were some betters at those places for whom it was more predictable, but we don't need to get into that. Uh, and so I do have this feeling of, um, you know, it's good that we're talking about it. I enjoy talking about it. I wrote another piece for McLean's today, uh, uh, focusing on the thing that I think that is most interesting. But I also feel like, just like 2019 and a little bit like 2015, um, 
we don't know really how voters are going to kind of narrow their focus and their minds until uh, at least a week to two weeks from now. It seems to me that's when it's going to start to come into shape. And I know Chantal said this uh, the last time we got together. Um, But it's certainly, you know, there's no evidence in the data that the Liberals have an easy path to um, uh, a majority, and they may have a difficult path to another win. It's all to uh, to play for right now. The only point I'd make about the horse race comparison, the sulky race, is in a horse race when, you know, one horse kind of breaks out to a lead early and they lose that lead, it's very rare that they come back and win it. They sort of like drift off into the background. Um, now, political races are different than that. We've seen movement back and forth uh, on a variety of things. Here's here's one thing I noticed. I just noticed it this morning. I, you know, I, I woke up. I was still on kind of Arctic Bay time where the sun never sets. And I, you know, got up early and there was a, there was a, um, a political ad running. It was a, a liberal ad. So we're two weeks in. So I don't know how often they change their ads. But they're two weeks in and they're doing the, the you know, the move forward thing uh, in terms of their ads. And the punchline, the key line is we don't leave people behind. Which really seems odd right now in light of the Afghanistan story, which is all about leaving people behind. So, you know, when an ad like that comes out of a news item like, like Afghanistan, it kind of clashes. You know, it makes you go, wait, wait a minute. Maybe it's time for a new ad. Uh, now, I'm sure that, you know, all the parties have a number of ads planned and they have different directions to go. And if they want to, they can, you know, stay positive. They can go negative. They can be kind of neutral. Um, and maybe it's, you know, two weeks in, it's time you start deciding which which direction you're going to go. Um, but I, I got to tell you that... That felt a little bit odd, and it raises the question of, and I know we've all talked about this, because um, you never know how long a story like Afghanistan is going to continue on. I mean, we've got whatever it is, three and a half, four weeks to go before the election, and whether or not this will linger, uh, whether or not it's really having an impact right now, you know, I'm not sure. Um, Chantel, you got thoughts on that? If it's having an impact, obviously it's not having a positive impact on the liberals. Uh, you can feel sympathetic if you're uh, more or less liberal friendly to the plight of the government trying to get people out and what is obviously a logistical and a security nightmare. But you are not going to be going around saying uh, no one else could have done better. Uh, even if the answer is what else would you have done differently is not uh, forthcoming. The fact is that the person sitting in the prime minister's chair was called Justin Trudeau. Um, and, and this is not the backdrop you want for an election uh, that it, because it goes to the issue of competence. I am surprised and I have been for the past two weeks um, that the prime minister uh, not that's liberal leader as prime minister did not feel like putting on this prime ministerial suit at some point and saying, I'm going to uh, take a pause on the campaign trail here to try to coordinate this uh, because this is so important uh, in the same way that uh, a tsunami would cause a prime minister to have a cabinet meeting to talk about what Canada can do in a crisis. And I'm not sure that the liberals I'm not saying it's having it's going to impact on the vote on September 20th, but I'm surprised that the liberals in their war room do not see the disconnect between the prime minister glad handing voters and announcing forty two dollars a month or whatever the amount for seniors if he's reelected and the pictures uh, of what has been happening in Kabul. It, there is a disconnect and he wears it because he is the prime minister and he is the one who called a campaign that he has so far failed 
to provide a rationale for it that uh, is easy for voters to understand. Navigating current events uh, during a campaign is is really tough, and it, and all the onus is on one side. It's on the government side. They're the ones who got to you know navigate it. I mean. I, you know, I saw the Aaron O'Toole stuff yesterday when he was pressed, or what would you do? And he, he didn't really have an answer. You know, he just said, we would, you know, we wouldn't have got into this situation and explain how he wouldn't have got into it. Um, but you're right. I mean, the, you know, the pressure, if there is pressure, it's on the government of the day. Bruce? Uh well, I want to be careful of how I, I put this. I, I obviously think that this is a tragic story and um, very dispiriting and distressing for Canadians who tune into it. I have trouble believing that it's going to have a um, significant impact on the political choice that Canadians make in this election. And the reason for that is, um, sadly, most of the time, um, the news cycle moves us past issues pretty quickly. And um, after the um, U.S. and all of the other countries pull out, will we be getting as much news about what's happening on the ground there? It seems unlikely to me. And I say unhappily because I do think that it would be better were we able to, as a society, um, stick with issues that matter longer. But I think the other reason, and maybe the more important reason, is the one that you touched on, Peter, which is that the for the average person, um, they may hone in on in the relatively short period of time when it became clear that there was going to need to be a massive evacuation effort. Could more have been done more efficiently, more quickly? Could the prime minister look like he was more focused on it? Some voters might focus on that, but I think for many people, it might just be a more a kind of a 20,000 foot level. This is an area that's really been um, a challenging area in terms of human rights for a long time. What is the origin of us being there? How long ago did we leave there? What is the, uh, what really are our responsibilities there? I think all of that is kind of unclear to people, which isn't the same as saying they don't feel a strong humanitarian urge to help. I think the question of whether or not governments, um, did the wrong things or did things too slowly or were bureaucratic. It just doesn't feel to me likely that those issues are going to become that, that prominent, but I could be wrong. You know, um, Chantel's point about, you know, maybe you should have shut things down for a couple of days and, and put on the prime ministerial suit and say, I'm going to manage this. Um, I'm not sure exactly what they can do on in terms of managing it. I mean, it is a kind of on the ground thing, but I, I understand the optics of something like that, but they can also cut both ways. Remember, um, who was it? John McCain in the campaign against Obama shut his campaign down for three or four days around the financial crisis, and it just totally backfired on him because there was basically nothing he could do. He wasn't, you know, in power, and he was just sort of sitting there on the sidelines. But Justin Trudeau is in power. Right. You always do risk the uh, the idea that there's something performative about it, which is, I think, what got McCain into trouble and I think is one of the things that is often a weakness for Justin Trudeau is that he strikes some people as being kind of empathetic and dynamic when he does things like that, and other people just find it kind of um, – you know, a performative political maneuver that they that they find distasteful. So I think there's always risk in that. But I also feel that um, the government, through uh, ministers like Marco Mendocino, was pretty active on the file. And, and fair enough that people will make judgments about what um, um, whether the government could have done more or should have done some things differently. But uh, it does feel to me that the government was pretty active in communicating um, through ministers as well as the prime minister about what it was um, doing during this period of time, if unwilling properly, in my view, to discuss the details of the evacuation effort. And you froze up, Bruce. 
<laughs> your your Zoom call froze up. up okay. Say that there were some hot takes from the media about this that I I, I think at bit. some point we are going to have to remind Bruce of something he knows, i.e., that we are not the media. Uh, uh, and that it's kind of too easy to sit and <laughs> blame the media as if either Peter or I should be responsible for this non-existent monolithic uh, entity. Every time fair I hear enough, the words, enough. no, but every time I hear those words, I'm reminded of the the Quebec-Canada debate and the rest of Canada which this big monster that wakes up in the morning to do bad things to Quebec and doesn't actually exist. And this, the, the, the every, and it's not just you, but the, the media thing is, about, is much like the rest of Canada. It's talking about something that actually is not monolithic and does not exist as that big blob. Let me That's be more precise me. about it. Uh, and, the next time I say anything critical of the media, I will try to be more specific about some in the media, and I will also not bother with the preamble at the risk of offending. Um, but I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to agree not to offer any criticisms of any media coverage. So let me be more precise. I read a number of prominent journalists and columnists whose take on what was happening in Afghanistan made me feel as though it was rushed, it was premature, it was overheated, and it would be better for everybody involved if it was a little bit more patient and, you know, awaited a little bit more evidence. And I think that in the course of time, some of that was proved out. So that's not meant to be a blanket condemnation of the media, but maybe more of a reminder of the of what happens in situations like this in the age of Twitter as a as a platform for instant journalism and the way that it can color uh, political events, including campaigns. So uh, apologies for the, uh, the blanketness of the comment and the uh, implied responsibility on the part of you two for it. That was my point. And um, I'll, I'll just leave that there. I, I think it. the real risk or, or the point of all this is not, necessarily that uh, if Aaron O'Toole had been prime minister last week, things would have unfolded a lot better or Jack Meeting. I think where it hurts the liberals uh, with the average voter is this notion that has made headway over the past few days that while Canada could have prepared for this, because yes, the Taliban entered Kabul much earlier than any intelligence agency had warned uh, they would, but it was still going to be happening. Uh, and the government was receiving letters from, and not exclusively the opposition parties in July. The inference is that the liberals and the prime minister were so busy planning an election campaign that they did not see to planning for something that was looming. Uh, and I think that hurts because the liberals in two weeks have not managed to get rid of the debate over the timing of the election. You know, there have been so many things in the last 30 years where intelligence agencies have not predicted or not warned of what might be coming. Interestingly enough, yesterday they were they were kind of on top of their game around the Kabul airport because they were suggesting hours ahead of time that something might happen. But in terms of the the big issues like this one, you wonder where where they were because this I, I still maintain was absolutely predictable. You could see it coming for years that once they cut this deal with the Taliban through the peace process, it was going to happen very fast as soon as there was a date. Um, but, you know, 9-11, the, um, uh, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union. I mean, you, you can probably name half a dozen to 10 different major things that have happened in the last 30 years where it seemed to come out of nowhere to, uh, to intelligence agencies. Or if intelligence agencies were warning of them, governments were doing nothing. Uh, and that, 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 too, is possible. Let me... Um, I'll only make one comment on Bruce's comments about the media. I'm lucky. I'm happy that I'm just now a retired pensioner 
And I'm sort of not in anybody's <laughs> nice try. <laughs> not in anybody's <laughs> camp anymore. Let me uh, before we take our first break. I, I've heard some um, some different data on on the gender split on this election. Uh, is it significant? Is it any more significant than it than it's been in the past? The way women are voting versus the way men are voting, or at least they're. Their, their their choices, preferred choices at this point in the campaign. I guess, Bruce, you crunch these numbers more than anybody. So uh, what are you seeing there? I think there's actually a lot of flux right now. And I think that's the most interesting thing for me. And it's the thing that I focused on in the, in the piece that I was writing this morning. Um, it, it, I, I do think that we see right now a gen, a generational kind of a difference where among younger voters, it looks like a fight between the NDP and the liberals among older voters. It looks like a fight between the conservatives and the liberals. Um, and normally there are stronger gender influences than we see right at the moment. Um, and those are stable, but I don't think they're necessarily stable now. And here's why I say that um, for as long as the three of us probably have been covering politics, one of the, certainly my evidence in studying public opinion over that period of time is that the, the, you know, people talk a lot about the base, but it's really switchers that make the outcomes happen in elections. And the biggest pool of switcher voters historically has, has always been liberal conservative switchers, meaning you'd either vote liberal, or if you didn't, your second choice was conservative or the reverse of that. And this week in our polling, we actually see that as a only a 10% segment of the population, 9% actually, whereas liberal NDP switchers are 21%. So that's a much bigger pool of voters relative to the liberal conservative pool. And that's a big difference from elections past. And it, I think it has also had the effect of making the liberals a little bit more preoccupied with those votes on the left of the spectrum, including women, including younger women particularly, um, which is probably from their standpoint, a really important thing to do because uh, Jagmeet Singh and the NDP was eating into their support pretty aggressively. And we pushed out numbers for much of this year uh, telling that story. However, the downside potential for the liberals is that if they had decided that there wasn't really that much risk on the right or the center from the conservatives, I think Aaron O'Toole is uh, writing a new playbook. I think that he, we don't hear from Jason Kenney. He won't campaign with Doug Ford. Uh, Pierre Polyev has disappeared along with several of the front benchers who tend to be those people who, who kind of drive liberal voters nuts. Um, and the O'Toole campaign isn't as much about don't you hate Trudeau as the pre-campaign conservative messaging for the last several years has been. So whether it's because he's got um, a different strategy in mind than Andrew Shearer, Stephen Harper had, or because his birthplace is a place where you have to fight for that liberal uh, conservative voter switch. I think that's the, that's the thing I'm most interested in right now. Will O'Toole's effort increase the pool of accessible voters who are liberal conservative switchers? And will that have an effect on how the liberals campaign so that they're less uh, fixated maybe on the, on the left side of the spectrum and uh, fighting two fronts? You got thoughts on this, Chantal? Mm. Um, 21% switchers NDP to liberal is also something I agree with the, with Bruce's analysis of O'Toole's, first two weeks, the tone that he's chosen, actually he's chosen to present himself as, as an aspiring prime minister in waiting as opposed to uh, the leader of the official opposition, which is what you should be doing if you're not auditioning to be the leader of the official opposition again. Uh, and it, he is more experienced and has more um, intellectual texture, put it this way, than his immediate predecessor. So he wears it better. It's easier to watch, for instance, the social media video about Afghanistan and Aaron O'Toole this morning uh, and think, you know, if this guy were prime minister, he would look like that. He doesn't look like he's, you know, reaching for something that he, he cannot attain. Uh, so so it suits 
to have a campaign that works, it has to suit your personality. And in part, that that is Justin Trudeau's problem in this campaign. They have him doing the negative stuff, and it doesn't fit his brand. Uh, so it always looks a bit, well, it looks a bit desperate, to tell you the truth. But can you? Voters, non-conservative voters, have spent the past months assuming that their choice in the election would be between a majority and a minority liberal government. With every poll, it's becoming clearer that that is not the choice. At that point, those switchers who are now with the NDP, will they be reconsidering uh, their options, thinking, whoa, this is a very different ballgame. I'm not getting Trudeau or Trudeau. I'm getting Trudeau or O'Toole. Uh, and if I don't want to get O'Toole, do I have to switch my vote? I'm not sure that Jacques Singh's decision to uh, imply that he could back an O'Toole government really uh, preserves the NDP from, from that kind of movement. And I'm not sure that the liberals uh, want to be suddenly trying to appeal conservative voters rather than bringing home those switchers. Um, as many people have said, that, it, that is the traditional liberal game when they're in an election campaign, when they're you know, in, in, in some sense of potential trouble, is that they, um, you know, they appeal to that vote that switched to the NDP to try and come back into their camp because if, if they don't, they're going to end up with a conservative government. That has worked many times. hasn't always worked. Didn't work, as you know, Chantel, because you were covering closer than I was. But when Bob Ray won, you know, they the liberals went on a massive campaign in the last, um, you know, few days of that campaign to try and do a communist scare. So, you know, it's going, Ontario is going red. It'll never happen. It can't let it happen. It uh, didn't work. It uh, didn't work but, at all. But it was the NDP leading. So if you were a progressive yeah. liberal and you thought the liberals were going down, it was easier to just switch than if you had looked at the, uh, a Tory government in the making. Yeah, I can I just, uh, Peter, I know you want to take a break, so I'll, I'll try to be really quick with this point, but I, I want to pick up on what Chantal said. I do think that the liberals probably presumed that either this was going to be a, a relatively easy and stable kind of from start to finish, or it was going to be a fight like they had to fight before, in, in which case having it appear to progressive voters that the conservatives could win the election campaign is a precondition of a uh, come from behind, if you like, victory, which they are familiar with, at least this version of the Liberal Party is familiar with. And it takes a, you know, I think it's a, it's kind of an awfully unpleasant thing for campaigners to go to, to realize that you have to spend a couple of weeks looking like you're losing support and maybe losing the election only to uh, find yourself in the middle of a different kind of election campaign, which is a fight for those progressive voters to avoid a conservative government. I think that it's fair to imagine that Aaron O'Toole has done a number of the things that would be useful to prevent that from that coalescence from happening, including, you know, what may seem to some people a relatively small announcement this week, um, support for gig economy workers. That would not be part of a normal or at least the recent normal conservative party platform. So very much an effort to reach out to young, centrist, urban, suburban voters. Having said that, he also made it clear that effectively an O'Toole government would reduce Canada's climate targets, essentially burn the planet faster. And if I were the Liberals imagining that last two weeks of a campaign where I was going to rally those progressive voters, that's a huge tool. Um, and so even though I, I want to be clear, I do think O'Toole has positioned the Conservative Party more effectively in the first going here. Uh, I do also think the Liberals know how to fight that fight that Chantal was alluding to. And O'Toole has a caucus with substantial numbers of people who left to their own devices would revisit um, a woman's right to choose uh, are a little bit waffly on some minority rights issues, and this climate change issue is a is a giant target um, for that coalescence strategy. Uh, well, so far, at least, if that is the case, they <laughs> they have not strayed to their own devices. It, it hasn't popped up 
as, as campaign issues, you know, the, the blow up uh, candidacies that we, we've seen uh, before in different campaigns. It hasn't happened so far. Long campaign could happen, could happen to them, could happen to others, could happen on the liberal side, could happen on the NDP side. And I want to talk about the NDP when we come back and ask the question, is Jagmeet Singh getting too easy a ride? This is The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge. And we're back with Good Talk. Peter Mansbridge here in Toronto. Bruce Anderson is in Beach Meadows, Nova Scotia, or close by. And uh, Chantelle Hebert is in Montreal. So, Chantelle, you start us on Jagmeet Singh. Is he getting too easy a ride? He is getting uh, uh, the ride that uh, is afforded to parties that are not expected to form government. I suspect still that ride is going to become a bit more difficult, uh, not because of anything in his platform, which... If he were uh, Thomas Mulcair in the same position in 2015, would have been in many ways torn to pieces uh, because a lot of it uh, is a, a sum of simple solutions uh, to problems that are too complex to be solved by some of uh, the platform issue. We will not be getting so much money from the ultra-rich whoever they may be, to uh, finance a lot of things in this country. And I could go on. We will not be uh, walking away from fossil fuels at the rate that the NDP says uh, uh, that we should. And national pharmacare will not be happening without some provincial buy-in, which at this point outside of uh, British Columbia is pretty much uh, in existence. So, but why I think it's going to get a bit harder is because of the positioning uh, that has emerged, which I find a bit unwise for, for the leader of the NDP to be going around telling people, if the government is a minority, we will decide then who we will support rather than just stick to the answer I'm running to be prime minister. For one, because it tells you if you're an NDP voter or looking to vote for the NDP that you are not. Uh, necessarily, you don't have a shot at, at forming a government uh, of your choice. But second, because it does beg a host of questions. This is a party that has presented all of the good things, quote unquote, that the liberals have put forward, $10 a day childcare, more ambitious climate change uh, plans, uh, etc., as a product of the influence of the NDP. It is hard to see how you make a rationale that having a conservative government that is in its platform, that is, it is going to get rid of the $10 a day childcare that the NDP has pushed for years, and that it is going to be reducing the carbon tax and the climate change emission targets of the liberals, those that the NDP won, um, that you could support that or that it is it is a matter of indifference, whether it's Aaron O'Toole or Justin Trudeau, as long as the NDP is in a position of influence. I, I think that is where the going might get tougher because it does beg a lot of questions. I also believe that many of the, uh, the climate change activists who, yes, say Justin Trudeau is not doing enough, would not be saying uh, it's, you know, four quarters to a dollar, whether it's O'Toole or Trudeau. I'm not sure that the indigenous leadership, by and large, is indifferent to whether it's O'Toole or Trudeau. Uh, I'm not sure that women who want more childcare and who have not been getting it are indifferent to the notion that it's O'Toole or Trudeau because we've seen this before. And why should we not just go back to where things were uh, before the liberals again decided to get serious about childcare? So I, I think all those will beg interesting questions. Aaron O'Toole has done what he needs to do to look less scary, and I have anecdotal evidence that that is working, and we'll talk about that at some point, possibly. But I'm not sure that the NDP sympathizers are willing to give Mr. Singh a blank check. We're going to vote for you. It doesn't. We're indifferent to which of the two is prime minister. I, I don't see that 
happening when I talk to voters uh, about their prospects. They have been working on the assumption that Trudeau would be in and preferably if they're NDP sympathizers in a minority position. All right. I, I want to get to your anecdotal evidence on on the Aaron O'Toole question, but let me give uh, Bruce a shot at the, um, at the Singh question. Is he getting too easy a ride? Well, uh, yes, in a way, but I also, you know, I completely agree with Chantal that um, if this election, she didn't say this, but I would say that if this election does turn into a narrowing of the choice of what government you're going to get, a conservative government or a liberal government, then um, it, that does set up better for Trudeau than it looks right now. And part of that is because of the positions and the way in which Jagmeet Singh has campaigned. I, um, NDP supporters will probably hate me saying using this kind of analogy, but I remember watching the rise of Donald Trump and reading about what was the essence of what he was doing. And it was, he was describing these, you know, really appealing aspirations and saying they were simple. Um, and in a, in a completely different, but also kind of similar way, Jagmeet Singh says, I'm going to solve all of the problems that you identify and the solutions are going to be really easy. And yes, you're right, Peter, he is not getting all that much scrutiny. And so is that a free ride? Yes, in a way, but it also means he's not really stress test, tested uh, at this point. And those ideas you know, might um, end up sounding like they're good aspirations, but you can't afford to vote for them if the risk is that you are going to get an O'Toole government. And I think that the the thing that O'Toole has done for himself personally isn't the same as saying the conservative brand is somehow rehabilitated with a lot of those voters for whom Indigenous issues or diversity or inclusion or climate change um, or women's rights. That The conservative brand has a lot of repair work to do. And I think that O'Toole has started that process, but I think that the, you know, if, if we were four days out from the election, I would have a different feeling about the dynamic that might lie ahead, but we're, you know, from by Canadian standards, we've got a long election ahead of us, it seems. And, and I think that, that a lot of that's going to come into, into focus. You know, the, um, I'll, I'll tell you one thing about uh, Jagmeet saying that, uh, First of all, I agree that he hasn't been stress tested yet. And I agree with both of you that that's coming. You know, it'll come at a certain point in these next couple of weeks. It may be in the debate when, when, when you know, Trudeau especially may choose to go after him in some degree if, if he thinks he needs to at that point. Um, but I'll tell you one thing. From the little I've seen when he is stress tested, he's pretty smooth. You know, I, I, I'm not sure he has the answers. But he sounds like he has the answers, um, uh, which which can take you a, a you know a certain length of the uh, the football field, if you will, um, and uh, so it'll be interesting to watch when when he is pushed how he handles uh, things because uh, you know I, I I'm not sure Tom Mulcair did that well when he was pushed. Jack Layton was Jack Layton, so he, he was able to handle these things. But you know it'll be interesting to see what happens there. I want to get to the. Uh, um, Chantel's thoughts on uh, the anecdotal evidence surrounding Aaron O'Toole, but I'll take our last break before I do that. It's time to get back to The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge. Back with Good Talk, Chantel Hebert and Bruce Anderson. Chantel, um... You have anecdotal evidence for us. I love anecdotal evidence. I love stories. It is is totally anecdotal, uh, very removed from anything serious that Bruce would uh, come up with uh, from his polling. But still interesting. And first, uh, I'll preface this with memories from the 2011 federal campaign. That's the campaign that Stephen Harper spent uh, looking for a majority, which he eventually obtained. and he had spent the first two weeks of the campaign hammering the message that Canada needed a strong, stable government, I'm quoting here. And because I was 
in hotels and traveling in Toronto and Ottawa. I talked to a lot of people, restaurants, uh, coffee shops, and they wouldn't say that they were looking to vote for X, Y, or Z, but often enough they would say, uh, we probably need a stable government, which was almost word for word the conservative message at that point. This week, I was talking to people who are not definitively not conservative sympathizers or supporters, uh, and they don't know all of them are separate from each other. Mm -hmm. We weren't all sitting together having drinking each other's bathwater. And three of them said, well, you know, I'm not terribly scared of Aaron O'Toole. If that's what happens, that's what happens. And I thought that for me is the same sign as the we probably need a stable government in 2011 that the conservative campaign so far has achieved one important goal, and that is to uh, make sure that some people who are spooked by the conservatives feel reassured that Aaron O'Toole is not Stephen Harper or um, Andrew Scheer. Now, I don't think it's because they are aware of the gig economy proposal or the union-friendly proposals or the uh, opioid crisis that should be addressed through healthcare and not through law and order. I'm not sure they're aware of all of those things, but the buzz that they get does not spook them. They're not going to vote for Aaron O'Toole, those people. The other thing I thought was interesting because I'd never seen it before. It may or may not work to uh, to those advantage. Usually, you know, once pity sits, sets in, it doesn't really lead to great success. But two or three people on the bus uh, on the street talk about the campaign and they would talk about Justin Trudeau's decision to call an election. These people were not angry about the election. They were puzzled by how since then Justin Trudeau did not seem to be, you know, campaigning with gusto. But the word that kept coming back in all those chats was sad. It's sad to watch. I've never heard sad to watch associated with Justin Trudeau before. Whether that means that in the end, these people would give him their vote because they think that he's getting a bit of a, a bum right to having manage Canada through the pandemic. I don't know. But but those are not the kind of comments you usually hear in an election campaign on the streets in Montreal. You know, I, I'm i not sure I would agree with sad to watch, um, but I do, I get your stuff about no sense of gusto. As, as I said earlier, I was, you know, up early this morning, I was watching some campaign footage from the last couple of days. And it, the body language on on Trudeau just wasn't what I was used to. Like it was like he wasn't into it yet. I mean, it's early. Maybe he's you know maybe he's tired. I don't know. He he, he just it, it, there was a sense there when I was watching that he's you know he hasn't hit game form yet. And um, you know you don't want to wait too long in a short campaign to hit game form if if that's the case. Wait. wait what do you make of these, this anecdotal evidence, uh, Mr. Anderson, media well, media watcher? Well, I definitely, you know, this is the this is the the great journalism. The you know the trained ear uh, listening on the ground to the to the voter and um, hearing things that are reflective of a larger story and why you know, in my experience, the all the journalists I've known over the years who say there's nothing quite like going out and talking to voters. And, uh, and I, I love that kind of journalism. I think it's really important. And I think um, it would be great if we had lots of it. Um, the, I think that, that the point about um, nobody's uh, who's not conservative in this race has yet taken the time to do to the conservative idea what, has routinely been done for the last several elections, which is demonize it. Jagmeet Singh doesn't do it because he's poaching liberal votes. Justin Trudeau doesn't do it because he's trying to win those liberal NDP switcher votes. And um, and I think that, uh, so it's not being done uh, in any kind of routine way. Whether it will be done, to me, I, I do see that being the gravitational pull 
of the next few weeks where we're going to see polls likely that show a conservative lead, probably a small lead, but enough that that it will start to change the conversation about is this going to be a Trudeau majority or a Trudeau minority to is this going to be a, a conservative government or, or a liberal government after the election? Um, so I guess I think that the the patterns that we're seeing right now set up the um, come from behind Justin Trudeau, which is the version of Justin Trudeau that always campaigns better to me than um, uh, than the incumbent government version. And I think that when you're an incumbent government and you're running, there's always this kind of question, should you run on your record or are people going to say, well, that's what you did for me yesterday and I don't want to hear it. I want to hear about what's next. And we can see that in the data sometimes. On the other hand, if you presume that people know what you've done and so you don't talk about it, there is a real risk in the day and age that we live in where people consume information in so many different ways that they might not know a lot of the things that a government has done on their behalf. And so there's probably more value in letting people know that if it doesn't come off as, uh, you know, overly self-absorbed and rear view mirror kind of conversation. I don't think that this liberal campaign yet has figured out a, how much it needs to turn its attention to describing what a conservative government would look like. But I assume that work is, is kind of underway because they're smart people in all of these campaigns. I don't know that they've yet figured out how to move from a communications approach that, that feels a little bit governmenty, if you know what I mean, in the sense of the, um, the cutting edge quality of it. When I see the O'Toole and the Singh uh, materials, they feel more political and less official uh, to me. And I think that works in a campaign. And I think the liberals need to challenge themselves to, uh, to find that setting that is more like campaigning, more like campaigning from behind and definitely increasing the focus on what a conservative uh, party led Canada would look like to make sure that, um, uh, uh, progressive and centrist voters hear them on that and uh, maybe also uh, make sure that those soft NDP voters who were thinking that Jagmeet Singh is promising to do things that have not been done at all actually hear some of what the Liberals have been doing uh, on those issues uh, differently and in particular on issues like climate change. You sound like you're nibbling around the edges of suggesting the Liberals need to go negative. Well, I don't. I never really love the characterizations of negative or positive because I <laughs> kind of feel like if you're running a campaign and you're not prepared to criticize your opponent or call attention to their weaknesses, you're tying one hand behind your back, and the others aren't going to do that. So why would you do that? So I, I don't consider it negative in the sense of it's an act of shamefulness or something like that. I just think it's part of the business of fighting an election campaign. There's a negative that's caricature of the other positions. I think there was a bit of that in the uh, the, the attempts uh, on on healthcare and two tier healthcare. You must have thought when you landed back from the north that you'd fallen back to the 2000 federal election when you saw those uh, sudden assertions that the conservatives would bring in two tier healthcare. Uh, mm-hmm. And stuck well day in that little sign that he popped up at the end of the That's leaders' right. debate. No two tier healthcare. It failed because there was a caricature, and because in between we had a conservative government for a decade that did not introduce a two tier healthcare system, and it actually pursued the liberal policy on healthcare that Justin Trudeau then pursued from Stephen Harper, including the rate of increase of the health transfer. But I don't think it's negative to point out that there are choices uh, and those choices on climate change, on child care, to name two, are real. And maybe on health care. Would you agree? Do you think there is a choice on health care? No, too? I don't. OK. I, I think at the end, we always uh, I know this is going to sound cruel, but the, the federal liberals are never more interested in the integrity of the healthcare system than when they are campaigning and they're in a bit of trouble vis-a-vis a conservative uh, a contender. And then they are happy enough not to talk about it for as long as they are in power. So, yes, they, they, they look like 
they are presenting different approaches. Me, I think that one way or another, help transfers to the provinces and their either prime minister will increase, that those so-called strings attached will turn out to be, in the case of Quebec, not very uh, stringy. Uh, (laughs) And and that both governments are going to want some of the money to go to long-term care, and most provinces will find a way to say that uh, it makes sense, because if you're going to go in an election campaign and you're Doug Ford or François Legault, you're not going to want to be campaigning on not wanting more money for long-term care this year. All right. We've only got uh, a minute or so left, so i got uh, 30 or 40 seconds for each of you to point me forward. What are you going to be looking for in the the next week, which I guess will be, you know, really halfway through the campaign. Um, Bruce first, and once again, just 30 seconds. Well, I, I would expect the Conservatives to look at what's been happening and for the positive for them and to recommit to, to that. I think there was a risk going into the campaign that the Conservatives might not see enough momentum early and they might sort of fall to fighting inside. And, and I think the signals are they're actually becoming more unified and his support levels among conservative voters, O'Toole's that is, are going up. So I think they'll continue doing what they're doing. I think the Liberals will probably start to sharpen the contrast with the conservatives and bring that to the fore, as well as um, try to describe their, I don't, I don't think they'll attack Jagmeet Singh personally. I just don't think that math works. And I think Jagmeet Singh will will start to face questions about the point that Chantal made about, are you really indifferent to a liberal or a conservative government? All right, Chantel. By this time next week, uh, the Liberal campaign could be in more trouble or not. Uh, And that's because next Thursday is the TVA French language leaders debate uh, featuring uh, only four leaders, the Bloc uh, Québécois, the NDP, the Liberals and the Conservative, uh, by the way. If Justin Trudeau comes out of there in bad shape, Quebec, which has been relatively stable compared to Ontario, and that's good news for the Liberals so far, could start becoming also more fluid. That would be terrible news. I think the assumption that it's going to be as easy to box in uh, Aaron O'Toole as it was to box in Andrew Scheer in that same debate last time uh, is not an assumption the Liberals should be working on. All right. Thank you both, Chantel and Bruce. Uh, Another great edition of Good Talk. Uh, Keeping in mind that next week we'll start on Monday with the insiders. We get their sense from the kind of party perspective, so this is the way things are going. Tuesday is uh, the reporters. We got Rob Russo and Althea Raj. And taking a different kind of view of the campaign in terms of how some of the journalism is being done and what issues uh, we should keep in mind while we're uh, watching, listening, and reading to it. I'll have to throw Bruce in on that mix sometimes or he can crap all over. <laughs> Oops, sorry. Now, now, now. Come on. I based myself and apologize. It's all good. Yeah, it's all good. Listen, uh, enjoy the weekend uh, to you both and, and to all the listeners. Um, have a great, week, uh, great weekend. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening to Good Talk. We'll talk to you again on Monday.